If you have your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Daniel. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll, the guys will bring you one. I don't remember. I didn't write it down. I think it's page like 472, something like that. So raise your hand really high. This is week 11 of a 12-week study titled Faithful. We divided those 11 weeks into two parts. Part one was an examination of the life of Joseph. Part uh, two is a uh, study in the life of Daniel. We just broke it up, Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, the chapters. We are in chapter 5 today, and we're looking at a, at a historic event. I can tell you that the date on Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, is October 12th, 539 B.C., and we are going to look at the fulfillment of a prophecy that uh, Daniel interpreted back in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, if we go to the very beginning of the book, the first week, we set kind of the, the context for this. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem. He took captive the king, the royal family, and uh, literally thousands of others. Daniel and his boys were among them. And so when we talk about faithful, we're talking about Daniel's faithfulness living in, in really that, that adverse and adversarial culture and surviving in that. But then ultimately, always, it's the faithfulness of God. Uh, Sandy and I were gone, been gone the last two, we've been up in Flagstaff, and Tim taught last week, so I had a chance to, to just be there and to hang, and so I've done a lot of reading. I've, I've probably done as much background and, and research for a lesson uh, that I have in a long time on this, just having the time makes a big difference, and a bunch of time to think, and uh, uh, Sandy and I have been together almost 24-7, and so she's right now swimming, which I'm sure she's really grateful for. And uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to a group until this morning, so I'm, like, loaded. I'm just ready to throw up all over you. And uh, so I apologize in advance if I offend you um, or if somehow I get carried away. But I have, like, these, these, this, this huge wealth of stuff inside of me that just I want to just get out. And, and then God put together this lesson so it's perfect. One of the things that, that we have in the next, for us, is August is kind of vacation time when we're, when we're gone. Come back and teach in July, but in August. And, and one of the things I do is go to a place called Cannon Beach, Oregon. So you go up to Portland and make a left. And you drive to the beach about an hour. It's a wonderful place. And we teach at a conference center up there. Brian Laritz, some of you know Brian. Brian has, has spoken here two or three times. And we're splitting the week. So he's the evening speaker, I'm the morning speaker. And I've decided I'm going to try to, it won't be totally new, I don't think anybody can do that at this point, but, but create new things, something new that I want to teach. And I've had a hard time getting it in the form of a series, so I'm simply going to title it Random Thoughts, which should be inspiring to anybody that's there. But, but one of the things that's happened to me, and this happens all the time, is that God will take like a thought for me, and I go back to it again and again and again and again and again. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 8, uh, there's a phrase in there that when, when we talked about it the first time, I said it's the key to the, to the chapter, and, and it's, it's probably, I've expanded it over the last few weeks to the key to, to at least kind of understanding the book. I'm not sure it isn't really important to the entire Christian life. And so I've spent some, some time just trying to unpack, I don't even know what it means, but, but, but Daniel is there, remember, he's, he's taken captive, the king tries to assimilate Daniel and the boys into their culture. And chapter 1, verse 8 says, Daniel made up his mind that he wouldn't defile himself. Some of the translations say uh, resolved in his mind or Daniel determined. And it, and it seems to me that that's a key. And this is, I'm, going, I'm going outside of today's lesson. It seems to me that's a key for us it is, is to resolve in our mind God, who he is, what this whole Christian thing means, how it begins to flesh itself out. And it appears to me because when we get, to, we get to the text now, chapter 5, verse 1, there's a period in here of about 70 years. Maybe a little less, a little more, three-quarters of a century. It seems to me, and maybe it's even discouraging, but I only have what the text says, that Daniel resolved in his mind, and as far as we know, it doesn't seem like he ever wavered and only grew deeper in that resolve. So I guess that's inspirational on one hand, but, but, but somewhat discouraging on the other, because he, like he just seems like this determined young man and I think I would go back and, and, and put some credence into that, into, into chapter 1, verse 8. He determined in his mind, and his mind was relentless. You know, don't be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 
but, but be, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I've been spending a bunch of time just thinking about that idea of the mind. Have the mind in you that's also in Christ. It's the, it's the worldview, it's the mindset, it's the agenda, that's all that goes with it. And Daniel, it appears now, till age 80 plus, it appears that Daniel's just been determined that he will serve God, and he will be faithful to God, and he will trust God. And, and, and Daniel's going to do what he's convinced God would have him do, based on God's word, here's what he commands, here's, here's what he admonishes us, here's what he prohibits the rest, I'll take God's principles, apply them, and Daniel's going to do, I'm going to do what's right because it's right, and we're going to let the chips fall where they may. God's in control and God's sovereign. God's concerned not, a, not, not, a, not about my wins or losses. He's concerned about my obedience. And, and so that seems to be Daniel. When we get to chapter 5, verse 1, the first word is Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar is a, a man that we're introduced here we're introduced to him, and we're going to discover he's a historical figure. For a long time, historians didn't know anything about him, and therefore the book of Daniel was under a lot of attack. There were whole different theories. One of them was that the book wasn't even written until hundreds of years beyond where we would date it now, and, and that there's fictitious nature to it. In 1854, a man by the name of J.G. Taylor was leading an expedition in southern Iraq, archaeology, research, and they found these cylinders. And inside the cylinders, they found documents that dated back to the very time we're looking at, let's, let's say 540-ish B.C. And for the first time, there was a gap that was filled. In, in this genealogy, we can go through historic records and we can see that, that Nebuchadnezzar is here, and we can now begin to, to trace it from there. Nebuchadnezzar had a son that reigned. I'm not going to give you names because it's just going to confuse it. For two years, he was assassinated. Uh, he was then replaced by his son, uh, who, or uh, I'm sorry, by his brother-in-law, who was uh, uh, then also killed. Uh, that man's son became king, and he's killed by... Uh, some conspirators, and then a man by the name, I'll give you the spelling, N-A-B-O-N-I-D-S, reigns for 17 years. And there's a gap from him into what we see in Cyrus. Scripture fills on the gap with Belshazzar, but secular literature didn't until the discovery of these cylinders. And we're introduced to a guy by the name of Belshazzar. Now, the words that are translated father and relative get somewhat confused, but here's, here's what we think. This gentleman, Nabius, is, is now king, but he's not related to Nebuchadnezzar. He takes uh, Nebuchadnezzar's, in all likelihood, he uh, takes um, his widow and adopts her son, Belshazzar. Now, there should, could be some con confusion there. So Nebuchadnezzar is either Belshazzar's father, but in all likelihood, though it's designated father in the text, all likelihood is grandfather. Nebuchadnezzar comes along and he is reigning at this time. Cyrus, leading the Medes and the Persians, is stampeding through the world, conquering everyone. And he comes to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar goes out, and about 50 miles southwest of Babylon, there is this giant battle and uh, Nebius is, is conquered. In, in essence, what he did is he set Belshazzar up as the remaining leader, authority, monarch, if you will, in Babylon, so that they were kind of co-kings. That's the setting that you have. Literally, at this point in time, the fulfillment of what we saw back in Daniel chapter 2, verse 39 Remember, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and, and Daniel interprets the dream, and part of it was, he said, after you there will arise a kingdom inferior to you, another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. That's what we're going to see today. You're going to see the fall of the, of the Babylonian Empire. The Medes and the Persians are all around the city. It depends on which historian you read, but it may be a month, two, three, four. It doesn't matter. It's there, and they are sitting, and they are waiting to destroy this city. 
Babylon has degenerated morally, politically, economically, militarily, in every way. And as I say, the, the event that we look at can be dated October 12, 539 B.C. The, the city of Babylon is about 15 square miles. It's surrounded by a fortress wall that's 350 feet high and 87 feet thick. So they used to race chariots around the city. There are towers protrude at different places as high as 100 to 450 feet. So this is a massive start. A hundred huge bronze doors on this city. Running through the city is a river that brings obviously the water that's necessary for agriculture and thus sustains life. So it was considered this city to be impenetrable, safe and secure. Belshazzar is the king in chapter 5, verse 1, and he has a, a party. Party really becomes an orgy. He has a thousand of his nobles there, and they're drinking wine in the presence of these thousand. And Belshazzar tasted the wine and gave orders to bring the gold silver vessels. And these are the vessels that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 2. They're the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which is in Jerusalem. Now remember we said Nebuchadnezzar took these vessels to demonstrate really two things that are one and the same. One, the weakness of the God of Israel. Two, the superiority of the gods of Babylon. But apparently, best we can tell, though we had these vessels, they were taken and they were put away. They weren't, weren't used uh, for, common, for common good. And Belshazzar does. I don't... I don't in my old days, I used to drink a little bit, and when you drank, you would periodically do things that you might not do, sober, and this might be one of them. First of all, he has a party. Look who he has at the end of verse 2, his wives and his girlfriends. That's unusual. He has this party, and they're drinking, and he brings out these goblets, these vessels. He desecrates them and blasphemes the one true God all, all at once. And then, and I smile as I say it, verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. In all my days, while I toasted many things, I never toasted the god of wood. To me, is interesting. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this amazing scene, so let me paint it for you. The, the room that we, that we think was about 55 feet wide, and about 169 feet long. So it's not, not terribly different than this room we're in right here. Uh, carved out on the wall, and I'm going to go, let's go about where that screen is up there. Carved out there was a niche where the king and his entourage would sit and preside over this. So here's this scene with a thousand people, drunken, orgy, celebration, and then there's a party stopper in verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. So the king's looking out. He can't necessarily see what's writing. He just sees this hand that appears. So you've heard the phrase, the handwriting on the wall. That's where that phrase originates. He's, he sees this handwriting. He doesn't, he doesn't know what it says. And then all of a sudden, apparently either he can see it but doesn't understand it. Or, or he understands that there's something significant that's taking place. Verse 6, and his face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began to knock together. One of the paraphrases say his knees knocked and his legs gave way. He becomes pale-faced. He senses something that's happening here and here's what he senses. He senses that, that God is moving. Something extraordinary. And apparently everyone saw this, though we're going to see they not necessarily understood exactly what was happening, and it stopped things and it became, here's what I wrote, it becomes a teachable moment. It's a moment where the king, now remember the setting, is surrounded by the armies that are going to conquer him and destroy him. But either he, either he feels safe with the wall around him or whatever in perspective he's not near as concerned as whatever this is. And it may be that he gets the sense that, that God's beginning to move. 
God is a patient God. Now, Tim taught last week from Daniel 4, and there's that scene in Daniel 4 where, where Nebuchadnezzar, who's really flaunted, he's had two, three, four times where he's been exposed to the true God and even acknowledged this God, not necessarily worship him, but acknowledged him. But finally, there's this time in, in, in Daniel chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar is walking around the palace, and he said, look what I did, and I did, and I did, and finally God says, that's enough. And, and he then spends seven years, in a sense, of living like a cow until he comes to a census. And, and sometimes I think it's important for us, I'm going to go back and forth here, in terms of application, to understand while God is a patient God, God is not a God of endless patience. I, I remember being in a, in a prayer group where I was next to a, a, a man, and his prayer was this, Father, thank you for your infinite patience. And I hadn't been a Christian very long, but I... But I, I, I Grabbed onto that, and I said, well, that doesn't sound right. Is God a patient God? Sure, he's a patient God, but, but God's patience are not endless. Nor does there seem to be this prescription. We're going to see today that what ultimately happens is that Nebuchadnezzar, in the story we saw, was given grace. Belshazzar is really given justice. That God is a patient God. God's a loving God. But God's not just patience and love. Because God's a loving God, he's a God that hates if he loves sin, if he loves righteousness, he hates sin. And, and, and he's a God who instructs. He's a, he's a God who, who waits. It's not endless in his waiting. And, and God has reached a point here where he has decided that he is going to move. So the handwriting is on the wall. And Belshazzar, like we've kind of seen as a pattern with Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar is going, I don't know what to do, verse 7, so he calls together the best and the brightest, the brain trust, his, his cabinet, if you will, his advisors. And he said, any man who can read the inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be three things, clothed in purple, have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. So let me take them in reverse. Third ruler in the kingdom, why third? Well, because Belshazzar and Nebius, those are the first two, this man is going to have authority and rule. He'll have a gold chain. It's, a, it's the most valuable of the commodities. He'll give him this gold chain. It's a picture of honor. And the purple robe, as you know, is a robe of royalty. So he said, Here, here's the deal, guys. I don't know if you need incentive, but here's the incentive. Tell me what this means. And then verse 8, all the wise men came in, but they couldn't read the inscription or make known its interpretation. And we don't know if they could, could see it and not understand it, that God blocked it out. We don't know if they've been drinking all day, and therefore they, ah, what wall? Uh, whatever they say, whatever the case may be, they saw it, they couldn't, they couldn't figure out. They're left in the dark. And then King Belshazzar, who was alarmed, is now greatly alarmed, and his face grew even paler, and his noble men were perplexed. One of the translations say, King Belshazzar became even more terrified. He senses now that, that something is beyond his control. He's frightened. The blood drains if you will, from his face. There's confusion, maybe stampede, maybe panic. These people saying to one another, play it out in your own mind, what's going on at this moment? It's that moment, and it's, a, it's a wonderful moment in one way. And if we can live there, it's a great moment, and that is to understand that life is beyond our control. So, so we, we see it all around us. Okay, I, I, I guess we still argue that the most powerful man in the country is the president of the United States. And then he would, he would say regularly, but I can't get this done through Congress. I love it when one of those guys gets a cold. And you go, listen, you're the most powerful man in the country, but you got a cold. There's that illusion that periodically we have in life that somehow we're the ones who calls the shots or, or we really do determine. So, for example, I believe the Bible teaches that you're going to live to a certain date. I don't know what it is. We all have it. You have an expiration date right back here. And I don't think you can shorten it. I don't think you can extend it. I think you can, I think you can affect the quality of your life. And this idea that I'm in control and I have a plan. I'm not a, you know, one of the things that's, that's been interesting, so Sandy and I have been spending a lot of time together and obviously talking and talking about the future and, and what do we do in the future and what does that look like? And those are exciting conversations. But, but I, I, I do well and then not so well in them. I do well in that I like the conversation, but not, I'm not a strategic thinker, not a great planner. And I think the Bible teaches us to plan, 
But to paraphrase the book of James, it it teaches us to to write our plans in pencil and give God the eraser. So again, I'm not in any any way at all trying to capitalize on the events in that movie theater, but I guarantee you there wasn't a soul in that theater when they walked in thought that that was the ending that was going to happen. It was a night, you're with friends, you have popcorn, you're going to watch a show, and it ends this way. And that happens all the time. We're driving back from Flagstaff yesterday, there's fire trucks, police trucks, and there's a wreck on the freeway. You're driving, to, you're, you're driving down the freeway, you think you're in absolute control, got your suit belt on, nobody's going to bother you, a tire blows out, and there you go on the side of the road. So those things are all around us all the time. And, and it seems, and it, again, it's a very good place to be when you understand that, that, that you aren't ultimately the authority and the control figure in your life. Not an excuse to not plan, you know all that. Verse 10, the queen enters. Now, in all likelihood, this is Belshazzar's mom. I'm not sure how important that is. She enters into this, and because of the words of the king and the nobles, she speaks. And she says, O king, live forever. And that's about, <laughs> that's about the extent of that. That's out of the way. Now she says, don't let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. Because you got a resource you didn't know you had, Belshazzar. I'm going to give you a history lesson. There's a man in your kingdom in whom a spirit of the holy gods dwells. In the days of your father, he, illuminated, he had illumination and insights and wisdom like wisdom of the gods that are found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, again in all likelihood his grandfather, your father, your father the king, anointed him chief magician and conjurers and Chaldea, of the Chaldeans and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit and knowledge and insight and interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas and solving of difficult problems that are found in this Daniel, who the king named Belshazzar. He said, his name's Daniel, but you may not remember that. Remember, did you ever hear about a Belshazzar? Did you ever hear that guy? We're going to find out, in fact, that he had. Let Daniel now be summoned and let him declare what will happen. He said, there's this guy and he's legendary. You probably heard about him. The stories are all over the kingdom. There probably were times when you were at Grandpa's house late at night, and you said, Grandpa, tell us a story. He said, there was this guy, and there was this fire. And his friends went in, and they came out, and then we put him in the line. There's this guy. And then as he got older, my guess would be more sophistication. Here was the setting that was going to take place. And he came in and he interpreted dreams and he was a man of legendary proportion. So much so now, I think Nebuchadnezzar would be saying, so much so that by the end of this, I, I had to acknowledge that his God was the one true God. That, that Daniel would say, anything that you see in me in terms of interpreting dreams or value or wisdom, that's not me, that's what God gave me. And then we saw it two weeks ago and God didn't give it to me because there was something in me that earned it, but God gave it to me because he decided to give it to me. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king spoke to Daniel. said, are you the Daniel whom is one of the exiles of Judah, whom my father the king brought? He said, I've heard about you. This to me is awesome. Here's what Belshazzar says. I've heard about you. I've heard about that king of Israel. I know your history with Nebuchadnezzar. I know Nebuchadnezzar's story that we looked at last week, that he was this maniac for seven years. I know you interpret dreams. I know that, that you're a, a revealer of dreams, and the revealer of dreams, that God has revealed these to you, and you are his kid. And yet, you know what, Daniel? I'm not going to worship that God. Keep your finger right here in Daniel 4. We'll be back in just a second. Go to the right to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And, and we see that the pattern that's here in, in Belshazzar's life is not particularly unusual. Romans chapter 1, Paul has talked about the power of God for salvation that's found in the gospel. Verse 18, he said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And, and he talks about creation in verse 19 and 20. Sandy and I are staying in a place that's... That, in a community, very dark, almost no lights. And uh, we were out the other night. It was late. It was 9.15, 9.20, something like that. 
and we're walking along, and then right behind where we stay, there's like a little place. It's actually a putting green. There was a putting green there, and I said, let's look at this. And you look up into the sky, and it looks, like, it looks bright, and it looks like it's clouds, but they're really galaxies and stars, and there's billions and billions and zillions and gillions of them. That's what Paul's writing about here in Romans 1. He, he's saying, you, you look around. I watched, a, I watched a great interview with Ben Stein the other day, and, and, he, and he was just talking about creation, not a born-again Christian. He's talking about creation, and he said, there's just something foolish when you look around and say, somehow all of this came from nothing. There has to be an origin. There has to be just, just, and to me, that's simple logic. There has, to be some, there has to be at least something that is eternal in its existence, that was capable of creating something from void or nothing. And those are big terms, voids and nothing. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, I periodically read Jonathan Edwards, not because I understand him, but because it makes me feel smart to say I read it, though I don't understand it. Okay? But Jonathan Edwards has a wonderful definition of nothing. He says, nothing is what a rock dreams about when it sleeps. It, it, not, that, that you can't even... You can't even perceive nothing because if I say to you think of nothing you think of something and and to me me it just makes sense is there has to be something and that's what Paul's saying you look at the stars and the stars tell you they point you to something we got a lot of gaps to fill in but there's something but he said yet there's this wide group of people who say "Uh, no mm -mm. no here's what I'm going to do it's verse 21 in Romans 1 they, they know God, in other words, they understand it's there, but, but they, they don't honor him and they don't give thanks to him. And as a result of that, they become really pretty foolish in their speculation. They come with wild things. And then their hearts are hardened. And I love Romans one twenty two. They profess to be wise, but they become very, very much foolish. I have, I have lots of discussions with guys that are way smarter than I am. I got it. But they say some of, to me, the most foolish things and the stupidest things. In terms of the simple explanation here of trying to go through all these hoops of how we got something from nothing and power and creation. Well, here's what God does with that group of people. In verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and creatures. And God gives them over to their lust. It's not that God intervenes and pushes them that way. He says, is that what you want, really? You, you want to continue to push me away and push me away and push me away and push me away? You're Belshazzar. You know about me. You've heard about me. That could easily be somebody here today. You've heard of it and heard of it and heard of it. Yet God's never, for whatever in your, in your mind, God's never become God. They gave them over to the lusts of their hearts and the impurities, so their bodies would be dishonored among them. And here's what they do, verse 25. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So all of a sudden, they're worshiping dolphins and, and animals and the world. And even, even, even as Christians, we're flinched this way. I love the gift more than the gift giver. I love the blessing more than the blesser. But God simply says, is that, is that what you want to do? I mean, it strikes me. And I, I, I mean, I, I'm not a big animal guy. I'm not a big tree hugger guy. I mean, I, it kills me when I see a tree down. And I think it's just the age and how it took to get there. And it was, we were driving last night to dinner. And down at like Lindsay and Warner, there was a tree, massive tree down in the middle of the street. And I said, this is terrible. But I don't worship the tree. But I think you see people. I mean, why do you see the passion about some of these animals? I think because they've decided they're going to worship the creation rather than the creator. And God says, is that what you want? Okay, verse 26, he gives them over to degrading passions. For the women exchange natural functions for unnatural. In the same way, men abandon natural functional women and burn their desire to one another. And men with men committing indecent acts. Verse 28, and just as they don't see to fit to acknowledge God, God gives them over. Understand what God's God is not pushing. God is saying, that's what you, go, go. And here's what the result. See, see if this doesn't sound like the world we live in. It's being filled with unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, conceit, malice, gossip. 
slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Boy, have we ever been in a time like this? We are, you can take the biggest stiff in the world, and he's Walt Disney when it comes to sin. He's the most creative guy in the world. He can move this, do this, move your mouse here, click here. Disobedient to parents. They're without understanding. They're confused. The basic things of life don't make any sense to them. They're unloving, unmerciful. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice these things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. It's not just that they're satisfied that they're ruining their own life. They want others to ruin their lives too. If you go back to Daniel, I would say that's what you see here in Belshazzar. Belshazzar has reached the point where he said, I know, I know, I know, and God's finally said, okay, that's enough. Verse 14 of Daniel 5, Belshazzar says, I've heard about you in the spirit of the gods, the illumination that's in you, all those things that we talked about back in chapter 2. Verse 15, I had the wise men before me, but they couldn't declare this message. Here he he says it yet again in verse 16. I personally have heard about you, and you're able to give interpretations. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make the interpretation known to me, I'll give you those three things, the the purple robe, the gold necklace, and you can have the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, Daniel's, let's, let's just arbitrarily say at this point, Daniel's 85. There's something about people as they get older where the, the filter perhaps is gone, where they're not near as measured. Um, Daniel is not concerned about establishing a career path or building a resume. He stands before God. He wasn't intimidated at age 15. He's certainly not at age 85. And he's courageous. Verse 17, he said, keep your gifts. I don't want your stuff. I'm not for sale. I talked about it a couple weeks ago. I, I was going through some files the other day, and I found this quote from Jerry Colangelo. He said, I'll, I'll tell you categorically that as the stakes have increased in sports, more opportunities have popped up for people in every area of the industry to bend the rules, to take shortcuts. The ethics of business have deteriorated. The business seemed not only more innocent in earlier days, but more ethical. The stakes are higher. I watched a lot of discussion a couple of weeks ago on the whole Joe Paterno thing. And, and again, I don't need to get in the middle of that, but they were talking about Joe Paterno. And as this unfolds, um, it, it becomes pretty much an indictment. And Matt Millen, who was a man that played for Paterno and then went on to destroy the Detroit Lions. Um, Matt Millen was saying, here's what Paterno failed to do. Paterno failed to do what was right for the institution. No. Paterno failed to do what's right. Very subtle. I I would say his argument to protect, again, I'm way out of line here, but on the surface, it appears his obsession was to protect the institution, the final score, recruiting, and the bottom line. This man who really was an icon ultimately isn't much more different than some of the other guys that trip through there. No, it's to do what's right. Daniel's 85. Daniel doesn't give a rip. He's 85 years old. It's not a time to compromise. It's not a time to feather your nest. There never is, but certainly at this point, there's something about age. I, uh, when I began speaking, and I have young guys all the time talk about it, and, and I don't hold myself at all up as, as a, an example of how to preach, but, but they'll say, how do you do this? And ultimately, there's all sorts of techniques, but only you have to do it. That's, that's how you do it. And so I would go wherever they invited me, and I'm in Sun City one night to a group of about 70 women uh, probably the youngest of which is like 60. And it's an annual event, and I'm saying, you know, most of you, some of you, probably you, aren't going to be here next year. I mean, it's, just, it's not looking good for you, okay? Uh, and there's a freedom in this group. Well, I'm teaching, and there's a lady, and so there's a small group, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to 
you know, be in the room. And there's a lady, and I'm teaching, and, and she presumes that because she can't hear, no one else can. And, and I said something, everyone laughed, and she said, what did he say? And the lady next to her whispered, and he goes, that's not funny. And I said, okay, I can handle it. So I move, and I'm going to come and, you know, dominate her. So I'm standing, and I'm making my points, and I turn to walk away, and she said, he reminds me of my son-in-law. That man put my daughter through hell. So I said, okay. And, and, and no apprehension about it. Every time I taught at Westchester, every time I taught with old people, there's been some version of that. Well, the, the flip side is to sit with somebody. I was on YouTube the other night watching film clips of, <laughs> there can't be many people doing this, trust me. Watching film clips of Corey Tin Boom. And listening to her talk about facing Nazi persecution and the faithfulness of God. Talking about being in this prison where the lice were so bad and the germs so bad and the, and the filth and the disease so bad that the guards wouldn't come in. And Corey saying, what a blessing from God because they didn't come in, we could have church. There's something about a bitter old person that's frankly pretty ugly to watch and a godly old person that can say, my God is a great God. That's Daniel. Keep your, stink, keep your stinking robe and your chain, and I don't have time to be ruling. I added all that. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, the majesty of Nebuchadnezzar. He begins to deliver now Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. So that Nebuchadnezzar, this man of power, verse 20, who could kill who he wants and save who he wants and elevate who he wants, he could do whatever he wanted to do. But there was this moment, verse 20, where he was so proud and so arrogant that God came along and God took him and God reduced him to where he lived like a beast until he came to his senses and he recognized, the end of verse 21, he recognized the Most High God as the ruler over the realm of all mankind. That's the testimony. You know it. Don't you? Belshazzar, you heard all of this. How many times you got to see this? Now here's the problem, verse 22. You, his son, have not humbled your heart. Even though you knew all this, you should know better. So that's an understanding of God and who he is. I was going through, I'm, I'm trying to take some books back and reread and I'm really plowing through a lot of stuff. So I picked up this morning, Knowing God, which I read who knows how many times and how long ago, but it's been a while. But I remember there's a line in there where J.I. Packer says something to the effect that once I understand who God is in knowing God, that the rest of life falls in the kind of purpose of its own accord. It kind of fits together. And I remember years ago, somebody said to me, what, what books should I read? And out of my mouth came knowing God, loving God, pursue of God, and chosen by God. And I, and I realized this getting God is a big deal. And that's what he's saying. He said, here's the problem. We can, we can do it either way, Belshazzar. We can point out how, how bad you are, but let's do it differently. Let's point out God and who he is. And so I look around and I understand he's the sovereign, he's the absolute, he's the one who's in control, not me. And Nebuchadnezzar had to go through all sorts of stuff, but finally got it through the grace and mercy of God. You, on the other hand, have had all of these privileges. I mean, that's one of the great things. My, my girls never knew me as an unbeliever. Sarah was three months old when I became a Christian. And one of my great fears were whether they were around so much church, so many good people, so much faith, so much religion, so much Bible, that they'd never get a sense of their sin. And then finally, what I just rested in is that if they really are around people and they see God and who he is, then that perspective alone will give them a sense of their sin. Because we understand no matter how good we are, we don't come close to measuring up. And he said, there's the problem. You should have known you don't. Verse 23, you exalted yourself. You exalted yourself against the Lord. You dishonored God. You've desecrated his instruments. You've blasphemed against him. And now you're in real serious trouble. And God sent his hand, and here's what it wrote, and here's what it means. Verse 25, 
The inscription is written, many, many, take and parson. The interpretation is this, many, God has numbered your kingdoms and they're put into an end. Tako, you've been weighed on the scale and found deficient. Parson, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. He said, you should have known all this. You should have known better. But now we're at the end. Many, your days are numbered. There's a finiteness to it. The part of what I think I'm going to read about in the first week of August for a while is a little more about heaven. Then I understand that I don't know how close I am to it, but I'm a day closer than I was yesterday. That my days here are numbered. That this is temper. This this seems to be so self-evident, and yet everything in our fiber seems to fight against it and even make decisions against it. It's so self-evident that this is all passing away. And there's a sense in which a lot of this just doesn't matter much. And he says, "You've been weighed." I have something. I'm watching the clock. It is eleven nineteen fifty. At 12 o'clock today, I'm going to, this is not good, by the way. I'm going to weigh in. Uh, I've been on a little bit, I don't know if you can notice it, but I'm, on a, I'm in a growth spurt right now. <laughs> but it's horizontal, not vertical. And so Sandy's got the scale out, and I'm going to weigh in. Now, this scale is a scale where it's unforgiving, it's merciless. It does everything but mock you. You, you, you. you step on it and then in big, bold numbers. It doesn't even take time to calculate. I don't know how it does it. It just shows you. Like I'll step on it, I'll go 157. <laughs> 75? <laughs> 200? Uh, well, in that day, the scales were a little different. They were scales that were balanced scales. So they would, like, they would have like prescribed weights here. So if they're going to measure something like, say, some grapes, they'd have five-pound weights, and then they'd put grapes on the side until they had five pounds, and they would be weighed. And he says, here's what God's saying. Here's the problem with you, Belshazzar. You've been weighed against the standard of perfection, and you come up way short, Belshazzar. You're better than all these other people with this orgy, and you may be a heck of a guy and the king of the world, but I've got to tell you, you're way, way, way short. You don't think you are. I played golf three times um, in the last two weeks, which I hadn't played in a year, basically. And, and I'm, remind, I'm reminded of this, and I think it's true of almost every golfer, but it's true of every person. 90% of Americans think they're above average. Okay? It's true of every person. I, I think I'm a far better golfer than I really am. And he said, you think you're something, but I'm telling you, it's because you're hanging around with the wrong crew and you're measuring yourself by a whole different standard. And compared to this standard that we have, you're found short. And here's the problem now. Humanly, politically, militarily, your kingdom is about to be divided. Now, we can take that in these, in these grand scopes and we can move them down in individually. You'll say there's that day for all of us when we're going to experience that. The, the, the whole Christian life begins with the opposite now of the attitude that Belshazzar's given. His attitude is one of, of pride. I, I, I'm going to make a statement that you're going to go, really? That's, it took you 30 years to figure this out? But I really am convinced that in terms of living this whole Christian life gig, that the humility love part is the key. That the mind of Christ is the key. And if you take the mind of Christ in Philippians 2, that key that's in there is to humble himself. If you take that essence of love in 1 Corinthians 13, it's to, to not seek your own. That, that, that my life, even as a follower of Christ, is to push my agenda and my way and, and my and me. Lots of singular personal pronouns that are not typically followed by and I'm sorry. But when I understand all of a sudden that I absolutely, okay, I am, I'm, I'm, in, I'm incapable of saving myself, therefore Christ came, lived, and died, and if I embrace that, I have salvation, and I embrace it not just for that moment, but for my whole life, because here's what, here's what Jesus tells me, even as a follower of his, is that I can't do anything apart from him, that he does it through me, that he's the strength, he's the power source that I'm to love God, love my neighbor, that if I love him, I'll keep his commandments, and that all of that's going to be done by the Holy Spirit in my life. 
Again, Sandy and I had a long talk the other day, but really more me talking and her listening. She was great. And I was saying, I'm struck by the fruit of the Spirit is not a deed. He doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is Bible study, prayer, fasting. And I'm not, not demeaning those. He just said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, which all manifest themselves in different behaviors. So my life begins to be different, and it's motivated by something different. It's not motivated by performance and acceptance because God's already accepted me. He can't love me more. He can't love me less. So what's true here for Belshazzar and his nation becomes really true for us, and we begin to apply it. Then Belshazzar gave orders in verse 29. And I got to tell you, for me personally, I thought this was pretty cool. He followed through. He says, oh, well, that's not what I was looking for. That might have been the interpretation I wanted, but... He clothes them in purple, and he puts a necklace around their, his neck, and he issues a proclamation, and he establishes them as the third authority. He'll be second and be first pretty soon, if it, although it doesn't necessarily work out that way because Darius moves in. But that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was, was slain, and Darius of the Medes and the Persians now moves in and takes control. Uh, let me just go through a couple things, clean this up, take about 10 minutes. I, I thought the city was impenetrable. Here's what the Medes and Persians did. It's, it's, it's not very elaborate, really. They got the Corps engineers. They dried up the river. They walked in. They never fired a shot. They took over the city. And I imagine there's all sorts of imagery there. But what comes to my mind is I can, I can sit there and say, I'm pretty well protected. And God said, really? Boom. Done. And I, my, my takeaway of this is there's a sense in which you're immortal as long as God is working in your life. And then once he's done with you, it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to keep you here. You can fasten your seatbelt and fasten your seatbelt and sit in the car and never move out of the garage, and the garage will fall on you. Something's going to happen, okay, once he's done. Now, that's the story. When we pick it up next week, we'll look at Daniel in the service to Darius, so there'll be yet another boss, and we'll see a pattern that we saw, Daniel's life, Joseph's life, and the acknowledgement of this. As I said, I had a lot of time to research, and, and, and one of the things I did, and I went to a lot of a different like authorities. I shotgunned a lot of it on Daniel, all of Daniel, but especially Daniel chapter 5. And every one of these guys, and this goes back to, to Donald Gray Barnhouse in the 1950s and, and just kind of moved through, forward through Ray Steadman, John MacArthur, all of them. They all try to draw a parallel between Babylon and its vulnerability and the United States of America. And, and then they would go, and you can, you can imagine, and I'm not demeaning that at all because you can see that, but it's not just true of the United States, it's true of every nation, but they would look and they'd say, look at the sexuality, look at all of this. Um, I, I spent a little bit of time on this, and, and, and I said this first hour, you don't need to, I'm not a historian, I don't pretend to be an expert, I'm going to tell you what I discovered, if you know something different than that, good for you, I don't need to know it, okay, I'm not that concerned. As they study great nations and civilizations, they tend on average to survive around 250 years. Some shorter, some longer. Now, if you take that 250 years, that puts the good old U.S. of A. right in the sweet spot. And then there's different ways as people evaluate falls and rises of nations. There's a lot of emphasis, you would imagine, in the Christian circles uh, among the spiritual part of it there was one historian who, who did this list, and, and, it, and I'll just read you the sentence so you understand the setup. Each of the great civilizations of the world passed through a series of stages from their birth to decline to the death. Here are these ten stages. So let me just read them to you. It's the stage from bondage to spiritual faith, faith to courage, courage to liberty. Just, we were just getting ready to watch the John Adams series again, and you think of all of these things in that. Liberty to abundance, God blesses often. With abundance comes abundance to selfishness, selfishness to complacency, complacency to apathy, apathy to moral decay, moral decay to dependency, Dependency to bondage. So I can tell you, I've been reading these in the last 60 years. Everybody wants to plot these. Like, so they've been plotting stage nine, stage I, I, I don't know any of that. All, all I do know is it is historic fact. 
The incident we looked at today took place August 12, or I'm sorry, October 12, 539 B.C. And these nations, and they don't matter, and they're most powerful, and nobody could ever predict their demise and would exist that they would last forever, and yet they don't. Winston Churchill said, the one thing we've learned from history is we don't learn from history. (laughs) The philosopher Hegel said, what experience in history teaches us is that people and governments never learn anything from history or acted on the principles it deduces from it. Now, years ago, my mentor, Larry Wright, got into this book called Our Dances Turned to Death by Carl Wilson. And in that book, Wilson has the decline of the family as it it took place in ancient Greece and the Roman Empire. And these feel like we can speak to them, should resonate, I think. First, men cease to lead their families in worship. Spiritual and moral development becomes secondary, and their view of God becomes naturalistic, mechanical, mathematical. One of the great things that I loved, and I I don't know that it's as true now as it was, is early in the days of East Valley Bible Church, when you went into children's ministry, there was always a man in the room. I, I think there's something serious when a third grader comes into his class and all he sees is women, a young third grade boy. That somehow we say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get you back when you're in college. Here's the second thing. Men selfishly neglect to care of their wives and children and pursue material wealth, political, military power, cultural development. Material values begin to dominate thought. So I read a chunk of history, and, and, and you just see it all the time. These guys, and, and it is. To, to achieve great things requires great sacrifice and very often on the backs of your family. Even if the family comes along, they're fairly neglected. So every year, every year you'll have some, I'm stepping down as head coach so I can devote more time to my family, and then a year later they get a job. I mean, come on, please, serious, really? It's very hard to be successful in the world and equally successful at home. And I will tell you as a man, it's much easier in the workplace than it is at home. Here in the office, ship it to Singapore, get it to Dayton, get this over here now, I want it now. You go home, clean your room. Yeah, yeah, clean your room. Clean your own room. I'll clean your room for you. <laughs> it just did. I just added that. Third stage involves men changing their sexual values, preoccupied with business and war, neglect their wives, become involved with lower class women or homosexuality. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Now, step four, double standard. The women say that's enough of that. So the role of women at home and their children lose values and status. Women are neglected. Their roles are devalued. That's, that was the big discussion this week. Now we have a chick who's going to, I'm sorry, a lady who's going to be the CEO of, of Google, and she's pregnant. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? Can we have it all? No. Guys can't. Women can't. Here was a line I wrote this week. This is pretty good. I don't know if we've outsourced jobs to China. I mean, that's a big debate. I don't know if we've outsourced jobs to China. I know this. Millions of moms and dads have outsourced their parenting roles to the schools, to friends, to neighborhoods, to churches. Can't survive. Number five, husbands and wives competing against each other for money, leadership, affection. The result is hostility and frustration. Many marriages end in separation. Children are unwanted, aborted, abandoned, molested, undisciplined. The more undisciplined the children became, the more social pressure there was not to have children. And the breakdown of the home produced, and Neil's over here to my right, and I've been predicting this now for three years, anarchy. You're not going to tell me what to do. Look what's happening in Spain and Greece and all these places. You're not going to tell me what to do. Number six, selfish individualism grew, carried into society. Listen to this. And fragmented us into smaller and smaller loyalties. The nation is weakened by internal conflict. A decrease in birth rate produces an older population with less ability to defend itself. You have all these splinter groups. There's, there, there is somebody lobbying for everyone. Is the leadership in this country good? No, it's bad. It's awful. It's gutless by and large. But let me tell you what's worse. You stink as followers. You you can't lead 400 million people who have 400 million agendas. 
Number seven, unbelief in God becomes more complete. Parental authority is diminished, ethical and moral principles disappear, and they affect the economy and the government, and thus the eternal weakening and fragmenting of society, and it comes apart. See, that resonates. I, I get the drugs and sex, but you know what? They were back like in the Old West, shooting guys up, and they had prostitutes, and they had all that stuff. But, but there's something different now. I was telling Tyler the other day, we as kids knew we were screwed up. No, they don't. We knew we were nuts. And we knew we were wrong. And when we did things, we hid it. So since I got it all teed up, let me, let me just close this deal here. Let me give you the deal on the presidential election. It's not about health care. It's not about the economy. If it was about the economy, Romney would be ahead by 20 points. It's not about health care. It's not about Obama. It's not about Romney. This is a referendum on the American people. Uh, this is my 11th presidential election. Every one of them is the most important of all time. Trust me, not like this one. This is a big deal. And so here's what I've been hearing this week, you too. We're on a course that's unsustainable. I assume you understand that though it's Sunday, we will still borrow $4.5 billion today to fuel the government, 40 cents out of every dollar. It's unsustainable. Of course it's unsustainable. You have a workforce where in 1960, it took 18 people to support one person who was getting a check from the government. Today, it's 2.2 people. Is that unsustainable? You tell me. In the last three years, we've had 3.1 million people go on full-time disability. 2.6 million people get jobs. You have a country who has for a long time now been told that they're victims and never villains, and they begin to believe it, and they have come to a point, in my mind, where they believe the Declaration of Independence doesn't talk about a pursuit of happiness, but a guarantee of happiness. And when this starts... Number one, I don't know if you can stop it. I'm pretty sure you can't reverse it. I, I, I love these stats, these obscure ones. Every 26 seconds, a kid drops out of high school. Here's a stat I came across this week. This bewilders me. <laughs> the, the, the percentage of 19-year-olds in the United States with driver's license dropped from 87.3% in 1983 to 69.5% in 2012. That's incomprehensible to me. When I was a kid, all I could do was go to the car and sit in the garage, and I couldn't wait until I turned 60. You're telling me three in 10 kids under age 19 don't even want a driver's license? Something's wrong. I mean that. I'm serious. You, you've lost any sort of drive already. Now, I do a little more reading, and it says this reflects mostly an increased use of Internet. The virtual contact that it's possible through electronics means is reducing the actual physical needs of contact among young friends. So you got, you got a kid on Facebook with 2,400 friends, but he has nobody to talk to, no one to call. And, and the society becomes more fragmented, more selfish. This whole discussion about pay your fair share. Okay, I don't know any about fair share, top 1%. I got all of it. Here's, and, I, and, I, and I like to turn things upside down. But if you're making $40,000 a year, what's your fair share? I know it's not zero, yet that's what almost everyone pays, a federal tax at that level. If you're on unemployment, Medicare, Medicaid, and food stamps, I think you have a fair share. Go without lunch Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. People do it all the time to save for cars and college and the future. Get some skin in the game, but no one wants skin in the game. And not only not skin in the game, they want more and more and more. And you cannot stop it. Time for the genera greatest generation, all you old folks. Tell them you'll give back 5% of your Social Security. Get a little skin in the game. Fair share. Now, here, here, here's the news. It ain't going to happen. The leaders are gutless, by and large. And unless you say lead and tell them you'll follow, they're not going to do it. They're going to run this baby right into the ground. Now I come full circle to the lesson. But God's in control. God's sovereign. Boy, don't look around. I'm telling you, don't get angry. I can do that. Don't get cynical. I can get there. 
Don't get discouraged. I mean it. I mean, it's a big deal. This is a big deal. This is serious stuff. This is not just playing around. You're talking about your future. I can't fathom the world that Braden's going to live in when he's my age. But that's all right. What did I just learn in Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6? God's in control. Who's going to win the election in 2012, presidential election? Whoever God wants. You know? And, and, and our call is to be salt and light in the midst of this. But this is a very serious time. These are not small issues. These are huge issues with huge ramification. And you're going to have to lead the way. And then trust God to do whatever. It's like Daniel. You resolve in your mind. And then God does. That's one of the great things for us. And, and, and no matter how much, and I can work myself into these things. No matter how much I get into this, the bottom line, I go, you know what? He's God. He loves me more than I love myself. He knows what the perfect love is. He knows what we need. And he knows at one point in our life what we need more than anything else is Jesus. Many in this room have understood the truth of that, come to that point. That's why the cross is so important. I was thinking about that this week. Again, remember, 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 remember. Something powerful about going back and remembering, especially remembering what Jesus has done for you. And now, not to try to pay him back, but in response to his love, driven by his love, compelled by his love, the cross, you come in a time of communion. He was going to come lead us in that, okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you that you're a sovereign, holy God. Now, we look around and, uh, at least for me, I don't even feel confused. It seems to me really clear what's going on. And we're losing sight, not just of you, but, but we've become selfish. God, let us be driven by one thing now, the gospel and your truth. God, don't let us get cynical and sour. Don't let us withdraw. But God, let us be the men, women, students you'd have us be in this world. We pray that to you in Christ's name.